welcome to Teen Scientist on WDIY. I'm your host, Raina Malhotra. Here on the show, I aim to bring listeners groundbreaking stories of innovation in the science, technology, engineering, and math disciplines entirely from a teenage perspective. The program features young people and respected experts at the local, regional, and national level. Joining us to talk about the field of epigenetics is president and CEO of the Coriel Institute for Medical Research, Dr. John-Pierre Issa. Thank you for making the time to join us. I want to start by getting to know a bit more about you. So could you start by sharing a bit about yourself and your background? Of course. So my name is Jean-Pierre Issa. I was born in Lebanon in the Middle East, and I went to college there at the American University of Beirut, where I earned a medical degree. After my MD, I came to the United States for uh, postgraduate training, and I've actually been here uh, ever since, over 30 years now. My clinical training is in medical oncology, essentially. I'm a cancer doctor, but I'm primarily a physician scientist, and I spend more time on science than on patient care. And my specialty is the field of epigenetics, as you mentioned. So could you explain what exactly the Coriel Institute does and how it plays a role in the medical research world? So Coriel is a medical research institute. It was founded almost 70 years ago by Dr. Coriel, Dr. Lou Coriel, who also was a physician scientist, and he was interested uh, in infectious diseases. He was a pediatric uh, uh, doctor, and uh, he played a, a key role in early clinical trials of the polio vaccine. After that, and after founding his institute, uh, he became interested in genetics, and about 50 years ago, he started storing blood samples from patients with genetic diseases and other diseases. This was essentially a precursor for what we now call a biobank. Biobank is really a simple concept. It's just the idea of having a bank of samples from many different people, but it really has been transformative in research because it has allowed medical researchers access to samples that would otherwise take years to collect. And so today, the Coriel Institute continues this legacy of innovation of Dr. Coriel we continue to be an important biobank and a resource for researchers in over 80 countries, and we continue to do pioneering research with a focus on cancer and in epigenetics right now. And so you mentioned Coriel's biobank. How exactly does that work? Why is it so important? It works essentially as a bank of DNA or RNA or cells from patients with specific diseases and from controls, and sometimes these controls are family members of these patients. And so, say you're interested in a rare disease, there might only be a few dozen cases of that disease in the United States every year. And if you need to study DNA from these patients, you would really need to be talking to dozens of doctors, and it would be quite complicated to get samples from these patients. But at Coriel and at other biobanks now, we have been collecting and storing samples from these patients over 50 years now for the genetics biobank. And so if you are interested in a rare disease and we happen to have samples from that, you could simply call us up and uh, we can send you, you know, one, two, 10, 50 samples from patients of that disease that you are interested in. And so this ability to study many patients at the same time has been transformative. It has allowed researchers to find the genetic causes of many diseases and the kind of cells that we perpetuate and provide to researchers has also allowed people to develop cures for these diseases. And over the years, the biobank has evolved from simply storing blood to storing 
cell lines that can be kept forever to now storing stem cells from people. And we can do a lot of things with stem cells, obviously. And so that's what has been transformative, the ability to access these very relatively simply. And so how common are these biobanks? Are there a lot in our area or around the world? You know, when Dr. Coriel started it, it was really the first time that a large-scale effort happened. But now it is standard. Every large medical institute has a biobank generally devoted to cancer and to other diseases. This has also been copied or reproduced around the world. And really, every large university hospital now has its own biobank. There are also commercial biobanks that are specialized in different diseases, and many rare disease foundations fund biobanks because without samples from patients with rare diseases, it is very difficult to study a rare disease, understand its causes, and develop treatments for these diseases. So in our area here, I live in the greater Philadelphia area, there are dozens of biobanks in many different institutes. But Coriel continues to be one of the largest biobank and certainly one of the longest established biobank with the largest biobank celebrating its 50th anniversary in a few months. And were you always interested in cancer research from a young age? What was it that brought you into this line of work? Well, you know, I was interested in many things when I was young. I can't really say that I wanted to be a cancer researcher when I was 12. But when I went to college, I really discovered a very exciting research at the time. This was the golden area of molecular biology. We were now able to do things that we hadn't been able to do ever, including cloning genes and developing mouse models of diseases. And it just was so exciting. I knew I wanted to be a scientist. And I was on a path to become a medical doctor. And so when I did my medical training, I also discovered that Cancer is a fascinating disease. Now, I do have a, a family link. My uncle is a cancer physician and has been a cancer physician for many years. So I knew it was difficult to treat cancer disease, and I knew that it was very deadly. But what I discovered is also intellectually fascinating. And so I was really, I became very interested in helping discover the cause of cancer and eventually helping discover a cure for cancer. And so that's why I became a cancer physician and a cancer scientist. And can you talk about your educational background? Was epigenetics something that you learned about in college or in high school? Oh, I wish. Uh, when I went to high school and to college, epigenetics was really quite mysterious and no one was talking about it. Even in college, it was really a very advanced topic that very few people would hear about. But I was lucky because during my clinical training, I entered the laboratory of Dr. Steve Balin, who is a pioneer in the field of epigenetics and particularly in the field of cancer epigenetics. So I learned about it really during my training as a cancer physician, and I learned and saw the enormous potential in the field, and I decided to dedicate my research career to that field. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with the term, what exactly is epigenetics and how does it work? There's a really interesting history behind the field of epigenetics and behind the name. Really, very simply put, epigenetics is the science of cellular identity. Let me explain that to you. So many years ago, scientists discovered that DNA was the basis of genetics and the basis of heredity. So DNA is what determines who we are, the fact, you know, the animal species that we belong to, our characteristics such as 
eye color, hair color, our predisposition to certain diseases, and so on. So we are essentially our DNA. But a big mystery emerged because if you look at a complex organism like a human, we are made up of many different cell types. In humans, there are over 200 very different cell types. For example, we have brain cells, we have skin cells, we have blood cells, we have lung cells, and so on. These cells are very different from each other. They don't look alike. They don't do the same function. They remain as they are. That is, you know, a brain cell doesn't turn into a blood cell, and a brain cell doesn't turn into a skin cell, and so on. Yet all these cells have exactly the same DNA sequence. So DNA then cannot in and of itself and alone determine the identity of a cell. And, you know, as multicellular organisms, the identity of the cells is very important to this function. And so when DNA was discovered as the basis of genetics and heredity, developmental biologists at the time started thinking about this mystery. And a particular scientist by the name of Conrad Waddington said, well, there must be something that we don't understand here. And he hypothesized that there was a whole ecosystem that regulates DNA and that works on top of DNA. And so he called this epigenetics from the Greek above genetics. And at the time, he had no idea what exactly was this ecosystem. So it was just a hypothesis. But many years later, it turns out he was absolutely right. There is an ecosystem that determines what DNA is used and when DNA is used. And that ecosystem is what we now refer to as epigenetics. And so if I was to very simply explain it, if you think of DNA as a book, many people use that analogy. DNA is the book of life. It contains, you know, a sequence that determines us to be human. So it's a book of letters. Epigenetics are bookmarks, very simply. They are bookmarks that tell a skin cell, these are the DNA pieces you need to worry about. And they tell a brain cell, these other DNA pieces are the ones you need to worry about. And the bookmark is what determines the cell identity. I appreciate you breaking it down, but how are you and your team of researchers using epigenetic therapies to boost the effectiveness of cancer drugs? The first thing to think about is what is cancer and why are we even thinking about epigenetics in its context? Uh, And in fact, if you think about it a little carefully, it becomes very obvious. What cancer is, is a cell that forgot its initial identity. So a cancer cell is still a human cell. Sometimes it looks like a normal human cell. But it doesn't behave properly. It it keeps growing, it invades neighboring organs, it it starts traveling in the blood, and it metastasizes. And so what is really abnormal in cancer is the identity of the cell. It it, it really has lost its original identity as a normal cell. And I just told you that epigenetics is the science of identity. And so it turns out that it is absolutely the case that if you look at a cancer cell, the epigenetics are abnormal there. There is really a scrambling of these bookmarks. And without this scrambling of the bookmarks, a cancer cell would not be a cancer cell. It would remain, to a large degree, a normal cell. So when we realized that, when we realized that there was a big epigenetic component to the abnormal identity of the cancer cell, we started thinking, well, what if we can reshuffle the bookmarks and essentially normalize the bookmarks? 
And so that what we started doing a number of years ago by using drugs that can modify epigenetics, because ultimately epigenetics are biochemical processes that work on top of DNA. There are things like DNA methylation and histone modifications, and these things can be modified with drugs. And so we started trying to reshuffle the bookmarks and normalize them, and this is where the field of epigenetic uh, therapy was born. And it turns out that in and of itself, it can work and it can treat cancer. And in addition, as your question implies, it can also make other therapies work better. It can make chemotherapy work better. It can make immunotherapy work better. And so there's a big field now of uh, epigenetic therapy dedicated to cancer therapy. So what are the largest challenges that you face while working with such a new area of research? Well, me personally, the biggest challenge really was skepticism. This is something that happens when you are truly in something that is not mainstream, when it is truly cutting edge. Sometimes cutting edge information can take a while for people to understand and to believe. And so initially, when I was working in the lab of Eve Balin and, and a few other labs were working on this, there was a, a lot of excitement in the lab and there was a lot of excitement among a few people who really saw how important this was. But the larger field of cancer research took forever to catch up with our excitement. And as a result, it was actually quite difficult early on to publish some of these results in the top journals. And because it's difficult to publish in the top journals, it's difficult also to get funding and to get the kind of recognition that makes the field grow. And so this is not particularly unusual. You will hear that story many times for things that are truly out of the mainstream, they can take a while to become part of the mainstream. But that was really the biggest difficulty, and it happened early in my career. But it was also really an important part of what I was doing. It was difficult, but it was very exciting because we were working with something so novel that it took a while for people to believe it. And so how were you able to overcome that skepticism? What kept you motivated to make it more mainstream? Well, you try and try and try, and, and you publish as many papers as you can, and you think of the critical experiments that will make even the biggest skeptics believe what you are saying. So what happens, science is a back and forth. You propose something, and someone tells you, well, yes, but, and then you take that but, and you develop an experiment to answer it, and then you come back, and you say, well, I did this, and then you hear another but, and then you answer that question. So it's really the back and forth that eventually led to epigenetics in cancer becoming a completely mainstream idea, and you know, part of the textbooks right now. So where do you see the future of this cancer research going? What we've been doing for the past 20 years, I've been using fairly blunt tools to try to reshuffle the bookmarks that I was talking about. And in the future, we would like those tools to be much more precise. Uh, rather than reshuffling you know, all the bookmarks, I'd like to be able to reshuffle maybe only 10 bookmarks or 20 bookmarks or enough bookmarks to normalize the behavior of a cancer cell, but not to kill it and certainly not to kill its neighbors or you know, not to disrupt the normal cells that are present in the body. So we are working towards much more precise approaches to epigenetic therapy. And how long do you predict it'll take to see epigenetic cancer therapies as a common practice in the medical world? That has been one of the greatest satisfying uh, progress in my career. It is already in common practice in, in certain diseases. And 
The disease that I personally have focused on in the clinic is a kind of cancer that we refer to as acute myelogenous leukemia and a cousin of it called the myelodysplastic syndrome. These are very aggressive, very deadly blood cancers that happen primarily in older people, but can also be seen in some young people. And many years ago, there were very few treatments for these cancers, particularly for people over a certain age, say over the age of 60. And me and, and, and several colleagues were able to pioneer clinical trials of epigenetic therapy in these diseases. And some of these clinical trials showed pretty strong and, and eventually amazing results. And as a result, epigenetic therapy is now part of the standard of care for patients with certain leukemias. What we would really like to see is uh, for epigenetic therapy to have an impact in a greater number of cancers and a greater number of patients. And so this is what we are working on right now. And I think this will require a lot more work, development of new drugs, you know, a better understanding of the reshuffling of bookmark process. Can we do it more precisely? What exactly can we do in certain cancers compared to other cancers? But it has been very satisfying to see that it is now standard of care and it is used in tens of thousands of patients worldwide every year. Now, last year, Coriel was awarded with a grant from the National Cancer Institute, which was the first of its kind issued specifically for epigenetic therapies. So how does Coriel plan to use this award and keep that momentum going in the field of epigenetic therapies? This grant is called a SPORE grant, and it is a large grant given by the National Cancer Institute to groups of investigators who have a given focus, and in our case, the focus was on epigenetic therapy. And what we are trying to do as a group, and it is very important to keep in mind that it is a group, it is a group of almost 50 researchers who are at Cornell, but also at the Van Andel Institute in Michigan, at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, at Indiana University, and at University of Maryland, and so on. This group of researchers are all interested in epigenetics, in reshuffling of the bookmarks that we just talked about, and in applying this to treat patients with cancer. And so the group involves both basic scientists and clinical scientists and physician scientists such as myself. And our goal is to develop new epigenetic therapies, new ways to reshuffle the bookmarks, new ways to combine this reshuffling with chemotherapy or with immunotherapy, and to develop specific clinical trials to test these approaches in patients. And so we currently have clinical trials in breast cancer, for example, and in ovarian cancer, and are planning clinical trials in colon cancer. And so the idea is what I've been describing so far, expanding our use of epigenetic therapy to try to cure more patients with cancer. Well, that's really amazing. And congratulations again to Coriel on the achievement. Right now, we're going to pause for a short break, but when we return, we'll continue discussing epigenetics with Dr. Issa from the Coriel Institute of Medicine. This is Raina Malhotra, and you're listening to Teen Scientist. Spread the word about your business or organization to a well-informed audience. Become an underwriter with WDIY. Our lineup of NPR news and locally produced programs reaches thousands of engaged listeners in the Lehigh Valley and beyond. To learn more about underwriting opportunities, 610-694-8100 or WDIY.org. Welcome back to Teen Scientist on WDIY. I'm Raina Malhotra. 
Here with me is Dr. Jean-Pierre Issa, the president and CEO of the Coriel Institute in New Jersey, and an expert in the field of epigenetics. We just finished discussing cancer epigenetic therapies, so now I want to transition more into the topic of aging epigenetics. What exactly does this term refer to, and why is this field important? Well, the field really refers to the same principles as for cancer, but looking at it from an aging perspective. And There is actually an interesting story behind that as well that your listeners might enjoy. So when we were working on the idea of cancer epigenetics, it was actually very new at the time. There were only a handful of people around the world who were thinking about that and working on this topic. And so it was both daunting and very exciting. And I was a young scientist at the time making these really interesting discoveries of reshuffling of these bookmarks in cancer. And the lab of my mentor was really a cancer lab. But then, as a young scientist, I developed ways to study these bookmarks. And I found that, indeed, they were abnormal in cancer. But I kept hitting a snag in that I was also seeing some abnormalities in normal tissues from patients with cancer. And It was really unexpected. It's not something that I wanted to study, needed to use these as controls, but I kept stumbling on the fact that the epigenetics of normal tissues were not really as normal as we thought they would be. And it took us a a while to figure this out. But eventually, what we figured out is that when we studied tissues from young people, the bookmarks looked perfectly fine. But when we studied tissues from old people, the bookmarks were already reshuffled, even in normal appearing old tissues. And then it turned out that that process that happens in cancer, that is this reshuffling of bookmarks, is actually very specifically a process that happens in aging first. And at the time, there was a you know eureka moment because cancer is a disease of aging. The median age for cancer is about 70. And although we hear a lot about cancer in young people, it is actually extraordinarily rare. Most deaths from cancer are in older people. If we didn't age, essentially, we would never get cancer. And here was potentially an explanation for that. We were discovering that as we age, we reshuffle these bookmarks. So we develop epigenetic abnormalities. And these very likely lead to cancer predisposition, and that's why cancer is a disease of aging. And so at Coriel, we have been really studying this field now, which is an entirely different field, which is simply focused on what happens to the epigenetic bookmarks as we age. What specific research is Coriel doing, and what have you guys found? What we are doing really are many things. We are trying to develop methods to very easily and cheaply measure the changes that happen in aging, and that is, you know, measure the reshuffling of the bookmarks so that if a patient comes in the door and that patient asks, well, is my epigenome normal or abnormal, we can relatively cheaply and in just a few days answer that question quantitatively and say, you know, this fraction of your cells really have already reshuffled their genome. So part of that really is a biomarker type of uh, experiment. And why do we want to do that? Well, because we think that people who have a lot of abnormalities in their epigenome are also more likely to develop cancer. They're more likely to develop heart disease and so on. So it is this, this could be something that identifies high-risk populations. Now, you could then ask, but so what? What can we do about it? And so what we are 
trying to do about it is we are trying to understand, first of all, what makes it happen faster or slower. And we have discovered, for example, that chronic inflammation makes it happen faster. But we have also discovered that a healthy diet and calorie restriction make it happen slower. And that might be one of the reasons why a healthy diet and calorie restriction is associated with a longer lifespan. Ultimately, what we would really want to do is, can we develop a way to slow down the process and prolong life? Can we develop a way to reverse the process and potentially reverse some of the bad effects of aging? And so this is the excitement about the field, really, is trying to turn back the clock, essentially. And so we are thinking of approaches to do that as well. So in general, how are epigenetic therapies unique from other medical approaches? Are there any specific challenges or is there a longer research process? Most medical approaches are complex and each medical approach is unique. And so I, I can't really say that epigenetic therapy is particularly more or less complex than other kinds of therapies. In the case of epigenetic therapy, we are facing unique challenges. One of the unique challenges we do not fully understand all of epigenetics, and so there are potentially many epigenetic therapies that we haven't thought about yet or that we haven't discovered. And so part of what I am doing in my laboratory is to try to discover new epigenetic therapies that we you know, weren't suspected to be the case a few years ago. Another challenge that we have is when we reshuffle these bookmarks, we want to try to reshuffle them only in the bad cells because if we reshuffle them in the good cells, we could have some side effects of this kind of therapy. We don't want to change the cellular identity of what are otherwise normal cells. And so this is a challenge is developing the right way to do this with minimum effects on normal tissues. And so it does take a while to get there, and I suspect that it will take us many decades to achieve optimal epigenetic therapy. Are there any major ventures or projects that Coriel as a whole is working on that our listeners can look forward to in the future? Yes, we are hoping to develop new drugs and new forms of epigenetic therapy, and we're hoping that some of these will enter clinical trials over the next few years. And we're also developing technology to measure epigenetics that could be potentially very useful, and that could even be available to the public. If people eventually are convinced that measuring these bookmarks, for example, in saliva or in blood, can give you a measure of your own health, this could be something that then can be done in every few years relatively cheaply. You could measure your epigenetic age, if you will, and then, you know, if you're happy with it, continue what you're doing. And if you're not happy with it, maybe think about changing your behavior, changing your diet, perhaps exercising more or thinking about what else can be done to reduce your epigenetic age. And what opportunities does Coriel offer to inspire the next generation of researchers? At Coriel, we've been very lucky to have been involved in organizing a science fair that has celebrated its 40th anniversary not too long ago. It is applicable to uh, southern New Jersey uh, middle school and high school students. And this is an entry science fair, and some of the winners in our science fair go on to larger national science fairs. And it can be a way, essentially, to participate in the science process, even at the level of middle school and in high school, and get excited about it and learn more about it. We also offer internships uh, over the summer, potentially scholarships to learn a little more about what we do at Coriel. 
And of course, uh, in our labs, we host college students and medical students and undergraduate students who want to do PhDs in the fields of cancer research in general and the field of uh, cancer epigenetics in particular. And as a researcher, what has been the biggest challenge that you faced at any point in your career and how have you overcome it? I've been very lucky. I stumbled on an exciting field very early on. I can't stress how much luck plays a role in a scientific career. And in that respect, I really have been lucky. I have not had major challenges. And so the challenges I faced were relatively small compared to other people. But I did face uh, challenges that are very common that, you know, every scientist might face at some point. For example, I love science. Early on, I wanted to be in the lab all the time. But of course, you need to find the best work-life balance. You know, I had a family, and so I, I needed to make choices, and those choices can be consequential. And so I fortunately found the right balance that allowed me to be a good family person, but also a good scientist as well. For me personally, as a physician scientist, perhaps the biggest challenge was to balance my love of doing science and being in the lab all the time and my love of actually taking care of patients. And so these are challenges that many physician scientists face. Uh, they are you know, a good problem to have when you love both parts of your job. And for me, the question is, what was more exciting? And ultimately, I was spending more time in the lab than taking care of patients. Is there anything you would like to share with our listeners about you or the research being done at Coriel? I just want to tell particularly your young listeners that a science career is not daunting. It is very exciting. Science is about curiosity. And if you are curious, science is for you. My advice to young scientists is really ask a lot of questions, read broadly, read voraciously, don't be deterred by failure, and believe in yourself. And I can't say this enough, working in a field that was obscure for a while, it was very important for us in the field to strongly believe that we were correct. If we didn't strongly believe that we were correct, we would not have been able to convince others that we were correct. And what really matters is that your opinion of yourself as a scientist, the opinion of others is secondary, and it can be distracting in some cases. And so my advice to young scientists is believe in yourself. Now, where can listeners go to learn more about Coriel? Coriel, like many other research institutes, is an excellent place to work at for young people. It can give people a flair for what being a scientist is, I would encourage people to go to these institutes, visit them, do internships, talk to scientists. This is an outstanding career. It's a stimulating career, and it's a fun career. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Issa, for making the time to join us today. It's been so amazing to learn more about epigenetics from someone with so much experience. I'm Raina Malhotra on Teen Scientist.